Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. We're glad you're here. I'm Kevin McDonald, your host for this grand adventure, and I thank you for joining us. You see, our mission is to create a positive, personal connection to all things with courage and love. We invite terrific guests, interesting topics, and great conversation, all in a fun, entertaining way. And we always manage to learn something, too. So I hope you will stay right where you are for this episode of Positive Talk Radio. And welcome, everybody, to an episode of Positive Talk Radio that I've been waiting to do for quite a some time it's taken a little bit to prepare for it and i hope that everybody will stay for the entire show it is going to well be worth your time i do have to tell you the first of all i'd like to introduce uh my co-host uh today and always on wednesdays his name is eric hall eric welcome hi <laughs> hi um and also uh eric burst i have a question for you sir Hey, Eric Ryder talking with you. How you doing? I'm doing good, Mr. Ryder. Um, I got a question for you, sir. Do you know what happened 80 years ago yesterday? Wow. Well, I imagine a lot of things happened 80 years ago. Yes, they are. Yesterday. Yes, they are. But uh, what you're thinking of specifically, no, I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, and uh, um, we talked about this uh, quite some time uh, back, Mr. Hall and I, because yesterday was the 80th anniversary of our entry into World War II oh, that's right. and we the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. Yep. yep. Yes. Mr. Hall, um, yeah. you have got a very interesting take on that because we've got a very interesting guest today, don't we? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And uh, the Onishi family is who we are talking about. And as you guys know, World War II was interesting in, in so many ways. I mean, World War II was paramount in, uh, in, in so many ways. You know, technology, economics, Americans place, America's place in the world. Uh, was really at stake and really came to fruition out of World War II. But we also learned something about ourselves. Um, we've always had this ugly, dark side to us. And it's such an interesting take because we have an American ideal that everybody is uh, equal and has equal opportunities by law and by uh, divine right. Therefore, you were born. Therefore, you have equal rights to everybody else that has been born. That is the American dream. The American dream is to have those rights and go out into the world and prosper. And where we fall short of that, as beautiful as that dream is, and we do strive. I'm not being critical of anybody here. I am. <laughs> but we do strive to uh, keep that up. But we fail so many times. And we've had these we've had a, a leaning to demonize many immigrants and particularly people of color. And they don't even have to be immigrants. It could be peoples that were already here when Europeans arrived and, and somehow they get treated, you know, not only badly, but horribly. And not just for a brief few minutes during an encounter, but over decades and, you know, perhaps centuries as uh we, we have treated some races, and it's a constant reminder 
about the American dream, particularly with the Onishi family, because they have taken the American ideal, that value system that we hold so dear to ourselves about participating in community, taking advantage of everything society has to offer, and being true and honest to yourself and those around you, and then the world uh, treats you well back. And the Onishi family is such a strong example of an American ideal. And what they have overcome is a typical American story in so many ways, because it's a story about immigration. Mr. Onishi from Japan, well, the it, it, Mr. Onishi, the father from Kenji that we're going to be talking about today. Yes, Kevin. I, I'm going to interrupt you because yeah. it's my show, dang it. Yes. And I will tell you that that uh, that when we talk about America and American ideals, yes. well, once upon a time it was the Irish. Then it was the English. Then it, No, not the English. Excuse me. The Germans. Then, then it was uh, um, the African-Americans, still is. Then it was women. And now um, in World War II, it was the Japanese. And that's the, the framework of where, where we're at because Mr. Onishi was a Japanese-American. That's right. And we still demonize people. We were demonizing people that are coming from south of the border. We demonized people, uh, the Muslim community. You know, it's part of the American culture. I hate to say it because I am, you know, a person born here. We It's part of our culture to hold other segments of the population in fear. And when we look at the example of their lives, this is the beauty of it. This is the beauty of the American dream. Because as these people are so badly treated, their example of intelligence and grace and given to the community and living good lives is exactly the principles that we all strive to do, correct? Well, kind of, sort of, maybe, maybe yeah. a little, sometimes, <laughs> unless we don't. Unless and, we don't. <laughs> because I, I, mean to, I mean to tell you, see, and I learned something very valuable about my interaction with Mr. Onishi and his family, and, and that is this. They were treated horribly in World War II. I want to take everybody back, back into the midst of time, if I can, for just a moment. December 7th, 1941, 7 a.m. in the morning, 343 airplanes from the Japanese Imperial Army attacked Pearl Harbor. They sunk four battleships. One lost 1,000 men. That was in Missouri. Hmm. Lost 1,000 men in that particular moment. 2,400 soldiers were killed that day. Yesterday was the 80th birthday, or birthday, excuse me, anniversary of that horrible day. I did not hear anyone anywhere talk about it in any length at all. And I think that that is a crime. I'm sorry I'm on my soapbox because I really, th that was the beginning of the greatest generation. That was the beginning of the change of America. When we entered World War II, we had 343,000 soldiers is all we had. We had no military might to speak of, and our, our, uh, our Navy was just sunk in Pearl Harbor. Um, and then we turned on ourselves. And that's where the story of Mr. Anishi begins. And now I'll shut up and let Eric tell it. Well, you're, you're very much on track because, interestingly enough, the Japanese did attack Pearl Harbor, and that was a horrible thing to do, and it caught us off guard. It caught us off guard, and a lot of people died, and that was a terrible crime, horrible. I'm not taking away from the actions of that. But we're also fighting another group of people, Germans, who, you know, were fighting the world, 
who looked just like, you know, you and me walking down the street. And those people did not end up in internment camps. We turned to our Japanese uh, patriots, our American allies, our American neighbors, and we took their homes, we took their businesses, and we sent them to what we called camps, internment camps, which were which is a kind word to say a prison, and maybe it wasn't as horrible as prisons can get. But as you'll see in the story, there wasn't anything, well, there were some things pleasant about it in this story, but it wasn't meant to be a five-star vacation. So with that being said, you know, I guess we can just start running the story, and then somewhere about halfway through, there's a, a logical break, Eric, and we can just stop and uh, stop the tape and then talk a little bit more about it. But you will hear uh, an intro by myself and then uh, his four children, Robert Onishi, who is a detective in Renton, Eugene Onishi, who is now retired, worked in the high-tech field, and was very successful. You'll hear Phil Onishi, who is a, a music teacher, very successful, very cool dude, very engaged with the public, and uh, their daughter, Leanne Onishi, who is absolutely wonderful. She's also a, an, a teacher and very engaged in, in the uh, community. And you're going to get a lot out of this family. You will see the connection from the value system of the grandfather who immigrated here in 1890, forgive me, 1897, I believe, and then all the way through the current day. They have the same value system because it works. It's the right thing to do. So with that being said, um, Eric, please roll the tape. We'll look forward to seeing well, you sometime. Eric, during Eric the hold on just one more second yes, because yes. I, I just have to say I went into this conversation with Mr. Onishi and his family yeah. and, was, and was apologizing for what they had to go through and what we as a country chose to do to them, include, which was proved unconstitutional in 1945. Right. And um, they had a completely different attitude. It changed my attitude about them. They are what America is all about. Goodness is strength. Eric, go ahead. The story of the Onishi family is an American story. It is a story of immigration, integration, internment, perseverance, commitment to family, community, and country. It is a family that arrived early in the American story, then goes on to show us that when America fails its promise of equality and inalienable right to pursue happiness and prosperity, our individuals demonstrate to us the dignity of the American dream. We open the story with interview cuts from our discussion with Mr. Onishi's four children, Robert, Eugene, Leanne, Phil. So here are the cuts. Essentially, I think for my parents, it was a matter of the being a good part of a community and that community being society as a whole rather than worrying about making clear a particular ethnicity or heritage or traditions. I mean, those were great and it was uh, um, important to them to be able to participate in, you know, Japanese events and such, but it wasn't the big thing. The big thing was just to be the best member of this community you could be. And and they modeled that more than really 
spelling that out for us. It wasn't something they said. It was more what, as a family, we did. My dad loves to tell stories, and often those stories center on he and his family's internment during World War II. While the circumstances of the internment were terrible, his experiences were profound in the formation of his philosophy of life and how he's lived for the seven-plus decades that have followed. But it's a situation of perspective rather than identity, because it's not how he or we define ourselves at all. But it certainly did shape how we identify in the world that we live in. Our parents were interned during World War II at the Menadoka Relocation Center in Hunt, Idaho. They didn't know each other during this time, though they were aware of each other's family, as all families in the camp were aware of others. It's a place that built a bond between the people living there. We can look back and see they lived in really harsh conditions. Hot in the summer, cold in the winter, crowded, not enough bathrooms, not enough privacy. But there is something there, the way they were with each other. And they did their best to live normal lives with schools, music, art, dance, crafts, sports. For some, it was exposure to culture. My dad learned to golf in camp, and it became a lifelong hobby. Uh, my mom studied Japanese music, songs. She also joined Girl Scouts for the first time and studied piano in camp. There seemed to be a civility to the memory of the place. We've heard stories from other sources, and there's no doubt. Lives were put on hold, interrupted, held aside. Most people lost property, monies, belongings. You'd think there's nothing good that could come out of the internment. But we know there's a dignity and kindness about the people that were there. Our grandfather immigrated here in 1898, settled and started working for the railroad in Portland, Oregon. My grandmother, who was from the same neighborhood as my grandfather and knew him as a kid, immigrated here a few years later. They married, lived in the company-supplied boxcars that were converted into tiny homes. These were simple, one-room, tiny homes with a wood stove, kerosene lanterns, no electricity. It was a living area for workers, and they were one of only few families. They raised five kids together. Grandfather retired from the railroad, purchased a hotel just before the war. Grandmother and he were starting a new business, had been moved off the railroad yard. World War II was picking up steam, and word was, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese people would be interned. Grandfather died of a heart attack a week after hearing the news of the forced evacuation. He died before the move to the camp, but after the executive order had come out. My dad talks about how the news of the forced evacuation really broke my grandfather and how he really felt like that was the thing that really led to his heart attack and death. My non-English speaking grandmother was now in charge of getting five kids packed for an unknown amount of time to an unknown place. The Onishis recently lost their mother, Martha Onishi. So following is a recount of the internment by Mr. Onishi only. The internment as such was 1942 to 1945. My mom was a homemaker. homemaker. Mm -hmm. And when, when dad bought the hotel, she became the housekeeper for the hotel building. But other than that, she 
was a stay-at-home mom, more or less. Had four sisters. One, the oldest sister was married and had her own family. But three sisters um, and the two boys constituted the the family in 1942. What was it like growing up in in Portland? It was great. Um, My parents let us grow up free, do things, learn about things, Take advantage of everything that society offers you. There was very few don't do this and don't do that. The five of us kids were free to just go to the park, go to the swimming pool, go to the movies, go to the baseball games, make friends. They never said, you can't be so-and-so's friends, but they wanted us to experience everything that life offered. So... My life was pretty free all from the time I was very young. Very few restrictions. But we behaved ourselves, too. You know. <laughs> so you were pretty involved with uh, the neighborhood kids and, and the families. What, what few neighbors we had, yeah. uh, yes. We didn't live in... Well, we lived in a railroad yard, and had neighbors in Japantown to the south and to the east a little bit, and had many other Caucasian black friends north and west of our house or our place. So my friends were many people of many colors. The Vaughn Street ballpark was uh, on 23rd, 24th, and we lived on 12th. The railroad yard, if there was a street, would have been on 11th. In 1942, I was a freshman in high school. And then the internment happened, right? That's right. Well, you know, in in a lot of ways, we were expecting that. Mm -hmm. From way before, I shouldn't say way before 1942, but when in the late 1930s, the world was heading toward war, and some parts of the world were already in war. Japan and China were at war to get against each other. Germany had invaded Czechoslovakia and moved into Poland in 1939. There was war then, but the um, war between China and Japan is the stuff that affected us most because there were people in America who sided with China against Japan in the middle 1930s. Going back years before that, there was a lot of, lot of uh, hate toward the Japanese economically. The labor unions were against the Japanese because they were taking jobs from union labor willing to work for less, putting in more hours than most ordinary people would. So it was almost everything counter to what the unions were trying to do. Unions, labor unions were the biggest proponents or the voice for getting the Japanese out of their communities. But that... That movement goes way back to er- the early 1900s. Well, Japantown 
outnumbered the Chinese uh, by a, I don't know what the numbers or ratio would be, but uh, what we call the International District today was Japantown. And in 1942, when all the Japanese were moved out of the International District, it became Chinatown. Well, we had a lot of uh, build-up toward that day because we were expecting to be, I mean, before 1942, 1938-39, in the Japanese community, there was talk that something's going to happen if Japan and and the U.S. go to war. And there was a lot of voices out there in the general community were saying the most dangerous people, if Japan and America ever went to war, are the Japanese in, in our country. And not only the Japanese aliens, but those Japanese American citizens who are growing up, going to school and going to college and getting smarter, they're the most dangerous. But uh, that was part of the propaganda buildup. And it got worse and worse as we came closer and closer to war. General public was up in arms, ready to to get rid of all these people who who would be so dangerous if America and Japan ever went to war. We, We could only take what we could carry, which meant one suitcase, one duffel bag, unless you can strap another bag over your shoulders, I mean on your back or something, but most of us went to camp with a suitcase and a duffel bag or two suitcases, only what we can carry, which meant selling off everything, throwing away things, burning things, burying things, donating things, what valuable things might you might try to sell it, but that in, in itself is a story because people had some valuable stuff and they were being offered 10 cents for this or 15 cents for that. And uh, there are stories about Japanese a woman holding a, a very valuable treasure of hers and when she was offered 10 cents for it, she threw it on the floor and crashed it instead of selling it, treasured vase or something. There were six rooms to each barrack, six families, in other words, on the average of 20 by 20 feet. There were smaller apartments, 16 by 20, and some of the middle, larger apartments might have been 22 by 20, but on the average, 20 feet by 20 feet. It, It seemed like six might have been the number, because the families of... Eight and nine, nine people were given two rooms next to each other. Every, every camp was not exactly the same, but uh, our camp in Idaho was the most civil of, of other, all the ten camps. And the administrator or the superintendent of the camp wanted us to live as normal as possible and be um, relatively autonomous in, in the running of the camp. So we had a recreation department. We had, uh, I shouldn't say the school department. The education department was government-run. 
But some of the other things, like the recreation department, was mostly run by the campers themselves. If there wasn't activities director, it, it was mostly run by the internees, by them, you know, rather than someone else supervising the activity. The recreation department had set up organized teams and set up leagues, and that was that was really important because before the war, sports was uh, the backbone of the Japanese community too. There were fellows who played golf before they went to camp. I remember playing, you know, on the city courses, and when when they were interned, they still had to play golf. So there was one fellow who started to hit golf balls out into the sagebrush and gathered 20, 30 former golfers to do the same thing and got together and decided, well, we'll put a tee box here and we'll scrape the dust away and put a flagpole or broomstick over here for the first hole and laid out a course of six holes. But it was nothing like today's golfers. It was... (laughs) From sagebrush to sagebrush, where the holes were, and, and um, w- when I talk about playing golf to the school kids, they said, "Oh, you guys were so lucky! You get to play golf and go swimming every day and play biz." Yeah. Well, we're talking about playing golf, chasing the ball before it settled into the dust, so you can find it. Mister, yeah, Mister Kubota uh, developed a rock garden. It was a uh, somewhere near the entry to the camp. I don't know how to say it, but it was, it was almost a garden to, to welcome people to camp, this beautiful rock garden. When we first got there, everyone's, everyone's uh, neighborhood and the so-called yard in front of their barracks was dust and nothing else. But people did learn to grow flowers and bushes and trees and made their particular entry beautiful. There were activities for most everybody, mothers and women who had free time for the one of the few times in their lives, organized uh, singing groups, sewing groups, flower making, calligraphy groups, artificial flowers, and men who were bent that we needed chairs and tables and shelves in the room because the rooms were bare, but uh, the men started to make their own furniture. And there are examples of chairs and tables made at that time. Well, there were 12 barracks to each block, and in Minidoka there were 36 or so residential blocks as such, or the total camp was, uh, say, 500 barracks with six families in each barrack. Well, Minidoka was um, mostly Portland or western, northwestern Oregon and Seattle, Washington and, and western Washington. When they closed the camp in uh, Tule Lake, California, some of those Tule Lakes people did come to, were given rooms in Minidoka also. So there was a time when I learned and develop friends from Oregon, Washington, and California as well. But we were mostly Seattle and Portland people. 
But while we were in camp, there was a court case being heard in the Supreme Court. And in December of 1944, before the war was over, the Supreme Court announced that uh, the internment as such was illegal or unconstitutional. And the Army, who had charge of putting us in camp, announced in January of 1945, you're out of here because this is illegal to hold you. And when, when the Army said... We're not going to hold you anymore. You can go. Even back to the West Coast, people started to leave. Those who had some property back home did leave. My wife Martha's family had a hotel. They left in the hands of a friend. So they had some place to go. And father was one of the first to return to Seattle because he had a, he had a place to go. But most people were afraid to go. There was no place to go, and the people on the West Coast were still saying, don't come back here. We don't ever want you to come back. My mother didn't really have any place to go she, um, and stayed in camp until October of 1945. And when they said, we're gonna, well, you got to go because we're going to just close the camp, she said, well, where shall we go? And Portland was the only place she ever knew in her life in America. So she said, well, we'll go back to Portland. But there was no house, no place really to stay in Portland. But she, she knew Portland was the only place she could go. We learned, we did raise our own vegetables as the years went by. But the food was made as the, the cooks were under a huge handicap. They had one what looked like a family-sized stove, cooking stove, you know, with a flat burning surface. They had to put everything, if they stir-fried vegetables, they had to do it on this small stove and make enough for 250 people or boil potato in a large pot so everyone could have a boiled potato or something. For, for most of us, it was adequate I don't think anyone really went away hungry. They, if they went away hungry, it's because they didn't eat on their own choice. <laughs> and that was, that was part of my edu- education when we talk about learning to get along with people. You know, you're all showing up at the laboratory at the same time, having to go. Yeah. And no one's going to say, get out of my way, I, got, I was here first. I got to go worse than you do. <laughs> or you head for the shower room and there's six shower heads and 15 guys waiting to take a shower. I, th- I only saw one fight in the whole three years I was there. Mm. And that was a, a case of a, a bully kind of a kid who picked on another kid who was easy to pick on. But that was the only, only disagreement I ever saw. I was very sociable. Um, well, partly because my parents raised me that way from the time we were small. You go out and you make friends and you do things. And when I got to camp, I did the same thing. I could go from one group in camp. I mean, I, I had my boyfriends, but I, didn't, I could often, often tell them, I'm leaving you guys because I'm going to go do this instead. You know, the thing about the Japanese community in those days was consensus. 
I'll do it if you agree to it. Well, I didn't grow up that way. I, I made up my mind, I'm going, and if the other guy said, they're not going, I said, goodbye, I'm, go- I'm still going. So I grew up bouncing, I say bouncing from one group to another, but I felt comfortable going from this card game. When I got tired of it, watching the guys play cards, I would go to another card game, stand behind them and watch them and move on to watch someone else play cards. And uh, the same thing with organizations. In a clique-oriented society like the Japanese community was at that time, I could go from group to group without feeling like I was a traitor to my own group. That thought never entered my mind. I I learned to be polite to the youngest in the whole barrack, two-year-old Ruby, to... 70-year-old Mr. Uesugi, you know, you met these people every day, and you had to be friendly. At least you had to say good morning, you know, when you passed them. And uh, I learned, learned to get along with people and treat each person with a great deal of respect and, and admiration, actually. They were just great people. My parents lived that way, too. Father was a leader of men as foreman and a leader in the community. And my mother was very religious and compassionate of everybody, very smart. But she knew human nature and instilled that in us. There was one central bathroom building so that the people in the block, the 12 barracks, had to go to the bathroom building for bathroom facilities, wash basins, showers. No, we, we went at will, but, <laughs> but it meant everyone else went at will, too. So when you went to take a shower, you might have met 24 other people who had the will to take a shower. And there were six shower heads. There were six toilet stools on one side of the wall, six more on the other side, and when you all had to go at the same time. You sat on one side laughing at the other guy facing them. Anyhow, the women, of course, were different. You know, they're more modest. I'm talking about teenage boys. We could make faces at each other and, and do the business. But the women, the girls, didn't want to sit facing someone else. And so there were stories about making their own partition with a card, large cardboard box or to to shield themselves. Yeah, even even in the family, there was... Well, my sisters were... When I was 15, my sisters were 17, 19, and 21. And I think mother or one of the girls put a curtain between the bedroom section and the main center floor section of a, of a room. But there was no such thing as privacy even between brothers and sisters. And my sisters were... We're not little girls. We're talking about women and half men <laughs> growing up to be men instead. So there was no secrets kept. <laughs> I was drafted into the Army, and I registered for the draft when I was 18, like everybody else, in April of 45. And so when Mother left camp in October or late September of 45, I was not with them. I had gone 
to wait for the Army to call me. When I graduated from high school in June, I went out to Twin Falls to wait for my call from the draft board to, to report to duty. I worked for a while uh, in the, in the labor, farm labor camp where my, I had a cousin who was a cook, was hired to cook at the labor camp for Mexican laborers. And uh, I hired on as a dishwasher, kitchen helper. The draft called me late in 1945, at which time I reported to Fort Lewis. It was the Army Air Corps. The Air Corps was part of the Army at the time. Became the Air Force, a separate uh, division of, of the military in 1948 or 49, but uh, the Air Corps was part of the Army at the time. I spent just a little bit more than a year. <clears throat> I would have stayed longer. I enjoyed the, being part of the military was so important to me from the time the war started and the way the Japanese-American men were treated. There was a time when the draft board said, we're not going to draft Japanese-Americans. And some of the fellows who had registered for the draft and passed their physical as 1A, phys- physically fit to fight for the country, were denied serving because the draft board would reclassify them as enemy aliens. And there was a short period of time when the draft was closed to Japanese-American fellows. I made up my mind then, it just made me so angry, that if I were ever called, I certainly would go and show them what kind of a person I am. I am an American. And when I was called to serve, it was the happiest day of my life. And actually, every day of my service was the best day of my life. And then being discharged and all the benefits I received as a veteran of the, of the war, I could never pay for it myself. College education, home loans, oh, there was, I received so many benefits from it. But the biggest benefit was my self-esteem. You know, when one day you're nothing, you're not even worthy of this country, and then serving and being discharged, and it just made such a big difference. I was, I, I just can't say enough about it. it. It just changed my whole life and my whole outlook on life, the way I feel today. Almost all has to do with my military time. Well, I did. Sort of. I did so little. I I feel guilty about it. I, <laughs> you know, I made no sacrifices. Thank you. But the fellows who did sacrifice changed the life of all of us. The four forty second one hundred, the military intelligence fellows, went through so much, saw so much hell in in combat. But they changed the whole outlook of our country, of who the Japanese Americans were. What do you think about that? Are we ever going to get by this? Well, I hope we do, but we have to learn history. We have to appreciate the contributions made by all people who call themselves Americans. But a lot of times we have a whole generation of kids who think America is white. You look at the 
the pictures of the Second World War, you see white troops landing at Omaha Beach. They don't show the other people of color who also landed at Omaha Beach. But or the war everywhere else, you see white troops, and, and I'm not saying they don't deserve to be, but the men of color were segregated and not always shown in pictures. The war in Europe, for instance, was done, a lot of the truck driving and the carrying of supplies and whatnot was done by black American truck drivers and laborers. There was a little bit, I think, um, of the Tuskegee Airmen the other day when one of the fellows turned 100 and they they celebrated his birthday. Mm. But when you think of fighter pilots fighting in the war for America, you don't really see colored troops flying airplanes and doing that. It always seems to be kept on the down. Even our popular culture, you know, TV was so famous for uh, not showing people of color. I think I Love Lucy was, wasn't that the first uh, real minority to have a starring role? Was Ricky? Wasn't he one of the first? And I know radio had a couple, but it was always a drawback. And then the people, the musicians that uh, were of color were never really welcomed into the club to enjoy the show, only to work there. So minorities have always been put into this subservient place. Well, I know there was a fellow who wanted to wanted to be a, a air crewman early in the war and went to the Army and said, I want to go to the Air Corps and become a, a crew on a, on a bomber or something. And the army said, "You can't go there. We don't. We don't let you guys onto planes and things like that." Mm-hmm. Or even the navy said, "We don't want you as sailors." The Marine Corps didn't want Japanese as Marines. And it was after the war when they started appreciate what the Japanese-American soldier was and saying, welcome to the Air Corps. Glad to have you. Or then one of my friends was one of the first to graduate from Annapolis. That was 19... He didn't graduate until 1948 or 49. See, now I remember as a kid growing up, and I'm going to admit this because I think this is important too, and it just occurred to me why. Um, when I learned about the internment, which was, I think, junior high, when we were really being subjected to it, I, I sat back and I felt bad, but it made sense to me. Because how can you tell one person apart from another? So it made sense to me. And I think that made sense to me at that moment as a young kid, because everything that I was subjected to via media, TV and radio and uh, advertising, anything else a kid gets exposed to was all about white people. 
and the betrayal of minorities was always subservient or almost non-existent. So there is a consistency in that perception that wouldn't be changed until further on in, you know, learning about really what was going on. And I guess, I, we're still dealing with that now, you know, I guess getting the um, equitable portrayal of people, both, you know, not just uh, entertainment, but professional uh, life, doctors and uh, tech people and uh, teachers, these are valuable things to building an equitable society that uh, just wasn't happening before World War II. Mm. Not enough to make a difference. So World War II was a game changer for not just technology, because we know a lot of, uh, we took huge leaps forward in technology, but also the social structures that we started to become aware of, I think, were rooted because of World War II dynamics. It took a long time, though, a long time after the war was over that we started to see people of color in advertisement. Long, long, long time, yeah. yeah. I did not know, even before the war, when the government made a study of are these people loyal Americans or would they fight for Japan? See, what was Munson's name? I, and, you know, the president sent an envoy to study the situation, and a man named Munson went back to the president and said, most of the Japanese people in America are loyal to America. Most. I never met anybody among my friends who were friendly to Japan. In fact, we used to kind of laugh. I feel badly about that, but when a kid my age came from Japan to enter grade school with us, he was so foreign that we kind of teased him. That's the, that's the motive of most of the fellows I know who were combat soldiers to prove that they are not Japanese. In fact, I think in our earlier conversation, I never considered myself Japanese. And when, when the people who wanted us put away said, these guys who were born in America are Japanese. I said to myself, I'm not Japanese. And when my name was given to me as Kanji, I went for 20 years without saying I'm Kanji. I introduced myself to the guys I met on the golf course as, I'm Ken Onishi, I'm Ken Onishi. And even in the service, no one knew me as Kanji. I was Ken Onishi. I grew up a Buddhist in a Buddhist family, went to the Buddhist church. In 1945, I told my mother, I mean, I'm going to become a Christian and attend the Christian services because being a Buddhist was Japanese, and I was not going to be anymore. Even today, when people say, are you Japanese? I find myself saying, yes, I'm 
of Japanese descent. I am an American. I, I just don't want people to think of me as there are Japanese in Japan and there are Japanese Americans, Americans in America. I would like every kid growing up in America to have opportunities to become full what they want without someone getting in their way, I mean, in the way of, we don't want you to do this or we don't want you to, to have this opportunity, which so many kids do face. I've heard my dad say, um, especially since I was maybe in high school or older, uh, saying, you know, you didn't know me when I was really bitter. And it was really hard for me to understand what he was saying. And it's only been more recently really as an adult, that I've heard his story quite a few times and how difficult uh, it was for him to kind of go through that whole teenage period when he was uprooted and at Menadoka and, and everything else. Um, I do identify, I think, uh, I was embarrassed as a kid. I, I didn't want to associate myself with Japanese. And I knew, to me, Japanese was like Japanese from Japan. Um, I think I was very comfortable with who I was, but we were in a very white neighborhood and, and white school. Uh, and I guess I didn't really, I don't know how to explain it, feel fully Japanese and American, you know, an American of Japanese descent uh, until I got probably past high school. But I, I think um, now it's, yeah, I feel fully American as a Japanese American. As I've gotten older and had more conversations with my dad and he's talked more about his uh, experiences in camp, it it really has helped to explain a lot of his attitude towards things and the way he's gone about really living his life. So the, the his ability to be positive and find positive things in almost anything and his determination. Um, he's not a loud person, but, um, and he never, you know, raised his voice at us. Um, but if there was something that he felt strongly about, he didn't hesitate at all to speak out about something. And, um, and the, the, his belief that you can do whatever you set your mind to, I think all stems from his experiences, or a lot of it stems from his experiences uh, in camp, and his ability to live that way is mind-blowing to me. Uh, he really does believe that you can do whatever you set your mind to, even at 94 years old. Yeah, I was going to echo very much the same kind of things. I think the the coming out of the years of camp, um, how difficult that circumstance was, but that there was the ability to find uh, find joy, the ability to find meaning, the ability to to find recreation, all those things that came out of the difficult circumstances of camp. You um, you know, I certainly, uh, dad could focus on the challenges, you know, of how cold it was. And the fact that when they first got there, 
there there was no there were huge gaps in the floorboards and during the dusty season it in Idaho you know the dust would just fly through the the space and the in the floorboards and how how just uh, incredibly dirty and things that it was but that um, you know you found found ways to find positivity in that whole situation how they I think how he talks about really the successes of changing what was really just an ugly, difficult space to people putting planter boxes up where there was none before, how they created furniture from nothing. Um, all of those things, I think, were huge lessons for him. Um, and, yeah, as he's gotten older and had more time to reflect on some of those things, I think it's it really has been huge. Yeah. Our kids are doing well they're functional you know i mean some of them taking some time they're doing some work on it but um on the whole you look at them and you go you know those are nice people um most of them have found nice people to be with who who are amazing in their own respect um that's really kind of the proof in the pudding there more than anything else it's not so much about what we do i don't think as it is about the fact that people can just say those are really nice people. That really has a lot of import to it, probably more than just, oh, yeah, they're successful with this and this. Yeah, it's just those are really nice people. And it it also makes me, um, in, in some ways, really happy that without really trying to, um, we've kind of gotten my dad's thing where everybody somehow knows one of us or all of us. Are you... Kenji Onishi's son. I'm like, yeah, oh play golf with him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this kind of thing happens a lot. And there's there's a beauty to that, to knowing that we've been out enough in the community, not necessarily in a you know a really big impact way, but just to know people. Um, that's a really good thing. And that is the uh, and played in its entirety. We have got uh, an encore encore presentation that we are going to play Friday at noon. Don't miss that on KKNW. Eric, I'd like to thank you for all the work you did to put this together. It's pretty awesome. I do have to say. And thank you, Kevin, for everything you did, all that editing and and the work that you put into it. What a fantastic story! Thank you, everybody, for listening. And go to our website to uh, listen to it in, in its entirety as well. And I do have to say, you know, the greatest generation, 80 years ago, they're leaving us every day. And I want you to, if you see somebody that was in World War II, congratulate them and thank you for their service. And we will see you next time on my, in, or on Positive Talk Radio. I can't remember who I am. <laughs> Bye. Bye.